We'd like to thank Untapped Resources for sponsoring Science Rehashed. Untapped Resources is a Boston-based foundation that funds the arts, sciences, education, and creative initiatives of people working to improve lives, celebrate community, and solve local problems. With support from the Untapped Resources grant program, we are committed to making science more inclusive and accessible for scientists and the science curious worldwide. Tremors, stiffness, and sleep disruptions are just a few of the symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease, one of the most common and fastest growing neurodegenerative conditions in the world. The symptoms, severity, and response to treatment vary from person to person, and signs often don't start until late into progression of the disease, all have reached have posed challenge for both diagnosis and treatment monitoring. But emerging technology may be able to change that. New home monitoring devices have shown promise for being able to not only improve the precision of treating this disease, but potentially even detect and diagnose it sooner. This is Science Rehashed, the podcast where we offer a window into life science research to anyone in the world with an internet connection. I'm Layla. And I'm Mehdi. And we're your Science Rehashed co-hosts. In this episode, we have interviewed Dr. Dina Ketabi, the director of the MIT Center for Wireless Networks and Mobile Computing and leader of NetMIT Research Group. Dr. Ketabi is also the co-founder and president of Emerald, which provides wireless and non-wearable monitoring devices for various health conditions. In her recent work published in Science Translation on Medicine, Dr. Ketabi has leveraged these technology to monitor patients with Parkinson's disease. She can also assess medication efficacy and progression of the condition with more precision and convenience than traditional in-clinic follow-up. The research has also shown that it may be possible to detect the onset of Parkinson's disease significantly prior to development of classic motor symptoms like tremors. These findings have incredible implications for the future detection and management of these common and growing diseases. Welcome to Science Rehash, Dr. Katabi. To get us started here, we'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Uh, my name is Dina Katabi. I'm a professor at MIT, and I'm the MIT uh, director of uh, the Wireless Center. And I work in the area of digital health and um, technology for sensors and wireless sensing. Can you tell us more about what led to your working in this intersection of technology and healthcare sciences? I did one year in math school, and I was the top of my batch in math school. Uh, But then I also liked so much math, and I couldn't imagine living the rest of my life without math. So I I decided I'm not going to be in medicine. I'm just going to move to... My parents decided, at least have a compromise math, somebody like, if you are in math, then you're not going to make enough for a living. So just engineering, at least. 
so I switched to engineering, but it's, I was always interested. And that, and in fact, like, as I said, because of the whole family and the talking and our conversation is typically about medicine. So to me, I always wanted to do something that crosses both or bridges both domain. It was not foreign to think this way. It's not was like, oh, at, at one particular moment. It was just the opportunity came at a particular moment. That's so fascinating to hear that you had such a confluence of these unique circumstances that led to where you are right now. I think it's inspirational for many rising scientists that may want to touch base with aspects of healthcare. The question is, how can young engineering scientists enter this interface between their field and medicine? And what would you say to motivate them? For other uh, young computer scientists and engineers, I actually think that we really should and have as engineers to contribute here because there is a big need, particularly now, like I think it's um, data is really important. And we see how like we see how computer science, I mean, I'm a computer scientist, I'm a bit uh, like maybe biased, but you see how computer science has changed many of the fields from office work. Can you imagine office work before computers like using papers and like right? everything, how much we revolutionize this. Computing has changed like many, many fields as we know them today. And um, medicine is one of those fields where we haven't yet made that change, but the opportunity is humongous. And we see it in everything from the automation of basic operation to data and how data actually changes our understanding of diseases we were able to do something or to show something that even your best medical expert in Parkinson's disease would not be able to look at that data and say this person has Parkinson's or not, and the machine can do it. There are so many opportunities if for people who are in computer science, in engineering, in any of these technical fields, I think you are needed uh, and you can do a lot in medicine, in, in helping medical doctors achieve the best outcomes. Your call to young scientists is really inspiring. On the other side of that, what advice do you have about engaging with people outside of these fields, such as the public and public leaders? In the healthcare domain, it's really hard to do something alone. So you, you need to work with the uh, stakeholders, whether those people are pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies trying to develop new drugs and need new biomarkers, new understanding of diseases, whether they are medical doctors and hospitals trying to help their patients, or even the, the, the government, the different institutions. So I think you, you need to talk with all of them. The engagement and the ability to talk to all of these uh entities and individuals who are involved, I think is essential and is getting much better over the years. We have our devices uh, that, as you probably know, they are radio devices use wireless signal to analyze health in the home. And we have them deployed, for example, with patients who have Parkinson's disease. And in that, we work with uh, the NIH, we work with University of Rochester Medical School. We work with also Mayo Clinic. We work with Brigham and Women. We, we, we have them also deployed in the sleep lab, for example, in MGH. We have them deployed in the epilepsy unit with Mayo Clinic. So we have to work with all of those stakeholders to get interesting results. 
And speaking of these wireless devices, I think it's, it's, it's a good timing that we dive deep into your very fascinating paper published uh, recently in the Science Translation on Medicines. We will take a short break before digging into more details on the research. Hey listeners, if you're enjoying Science Rehashed, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate our show on Spotify by tapping the three dots next to the following button and then tapping rate show. This is also a great time to hit follow if you're not following already. And now it's time to discuss the details of your outstanding work that was just recently published in Science Translational Medicine titled Monitoring Gait at Home with Radio Waves in Parkinson's Disease, a Marker of Severity, Progression, and Medication Response. And in this paper, you presented a new in-home method for evaluating patients with Parkinson's disease, one of the fastest-growing neurological diseases. Could you please tell us more about the device that was central to this study? Yeah, so so the device emits a very low-power radio signal, 1,000 times lower power than your home Wi-Fi. So it is safe and uh, much uh, lower power than just the typical things that you have at home. And it listens to to the reflection of that signal from the environment, including the people that are around the device. And the, the initial thinking was very simple. Basically, think about your Wi-Fi, bo- uh, your Wi-Fi box at home. So I'm sure all of you um, uh, have one at home, or, uh, like many at work and all of that stuff. So think about that Wi-Fi box at home. What if it's smarter? What if it can use the radio signal to understand your sleep, understand your breathing, uh, your heartbeat? When you move, it knows like the speed at which at which you are moving. Uh, get all of that information, but without asking you to wear a wearable on your body, just purely by analyze the radio signals as it bounces off your body. So, so, so that was the initial thought. And over time, we were able to show that actually this is true. We can do this. We can have that box that looks very much like your Wi-Fi box and it sits in the background and analyzes the machine, the, the wireless signal that bounce off people's bodies using machine learning and get their breathing, heartbeat, mobility, sleep, sleep stages, sleep apnea, interaction, all of that stuff. And uh, that was really exciting to ask about the doctor, the, like working with other people. It was very exciting to us and also the doctors, our collaborators in, in hospitals and pharmaceutical industry who, who looked at it and said, oh, well, this is interesting. Can I use this to monitor my patient? Can I understand them better? And uh, so we started seeing and uh working with doctors, medical doctors, to deploy these devices in people's homes. And that got us to Parkinson's, uh, our collaboration with Dr. Ray Dorsey and his clinical team, where we deployed our devices with a large number of Parkinson's patients. And we started collecting their physiological signals at home, and including their motion, their, their sleep, their respiration to understand the progression of the disease and understand the impact of medications on the patient. Now, for people who don't know Parkinson, Parkinson is actually the fastest growing neurological disease in the world. 
Yeah, so it's very, very important to, to be able to understand the disease. And that got us to like very interesting results that I'm happy also to tell you about what we discovered. And we are super excited to discuss what was found in this study. And before we move on, we have a few more questions about the device. Can you give us and our audience a tangible example? How big is this device? Where are you going to put it in the home? And how, how people feel? Do, do you feel comfortable someone is always watching you? Actually, it's, it's easiest to think of it as a picture frame. So you see on my background, there are some pictures. So... Uh, it's probably twice the size of that uh, picture. Uh, so the, the picture is around eight by six inches, right? The small one. So double of that. And we mounted on the wall. Uh, it's very light. So we mounted on the wall using command strips. And it just connected to the power. And it just sit there in the background. And you don't have to worry about it. You don't think about it. And the only thing is required is Wi-Fi, internet, right? Connection. Yes. And everything will go to the cloud. Exactly. So that's for the size of the box. Now, uh, for uh, watching you, the wireless box is watching, <laughs> watching you. So, um, from a from practical point of view, actually, I do have a device at home. So I can tell you that you really forget about it. You just like... Maybe you are aware of it the first day, but once it is there, you just don't think about it because you don't interact with it. And is this a device going to replace in clinic diagnosis and monitoring, or is it going to complement existing measures? So in Parkinson's, even in the U.S., for example, there were certain studies that were showing that 40% of people who have Parkinson's are not seen by a Parkinson's specialist or even neurologist in many cases. And that is because like the, the, the specialists are few, they are in certain centers, and most of the people live away from them, like in rural areas, or like also they have mobility problems because they have Parkinson's and they, are, they tend to be on the older side, and many of them cannot even drive themselves. So being able to reach to people in their home to assess medication response and to assess the progression of the disease is essential and can complement the, the clinical care that they are given in person in the clinic. And in some people, that might be the only way they can get access. It seems like Parkinson's is extremely fortuitous sort of like choice for disease to study using these, right? Because not only is there measurable phenotypes, right, that you guys can pick up, but also there's like a clear driven need, not just because it's growing, but also because of the difficulties in even accessing a neurologist. And this is in the United States. You can imagine that the situation is much worse in other countries. Absolutely. So these devices were installed and data was collected. What have you found? One of the big difficulties in Parkinson's is that every patient is different. It's not like a homogeneous disease. The people are very different under this disease. So today, the way you help the patient, you give them medications, but you need to adjust the dose, like the medication that we have today for Parkinson, they are not, they don't cure the disease, of course, and they don't even stop the disease. They just control the symptoms. 
And when you give the medication, the medication has some time, like it works for for some time. And then after like a couple of hours, the medication impact starts wearing off and the person needs to take another dose. But how, how much time it takes for the medication impact to wear off and uh, like how many doses a person should have and all of that stuff, it's really hard to know for each individual. So the doctor typically say, ask the patient, that's just like, are you feeling fine? Are you able to move? All of those questions and uh, try to check whether the dose is appropriate. Of course, they ask them like how long they had the disease and all of that stuff. So it kind of like gives you the dose that looks reasonable for how long you have the disease and uh, the answer to the question you are providing the doctor. But what we've shown in our data is that we can actually, by looking at the speed of the walking of the individuals at home, we can see that when they take their medication, they start walking faster. And then after sometimes the medication wears off and you can start seeing them slowing down, and then they take the other dose of medication and again, they speed up. So really now what we have shown is that for every individual, like you can start having kind of like precision medicine in the way you are to treating the medications. You are aware if for this particular individual, how long the dose was lasting for them and whether you are able to control the motor fluctuation or not and whether you need to increase the dose or change the dose. So, so that is quantifying this information other than like, how do you feel? Are you able to move properly or not? And being able to see it is very important for the doctor to be able to adjust the medication for each individual. Uh, the other thing that is really important in Parkinson's if it's, it's a slow changing disease. So it takes years, of course, for the disease to progress. And we don't have very good ways of assessing the progression of the disease. So it's not like you can take a blood test and it will tell you exactly how much Parkinson this person has. It's really, you do so like an extensive set of questionnaires and small tests of like, can you move this way? Can you move that way? And we keep asking the patient. But because we are relying on this, like on questions and answers from the patient and assessment with like a few small tests, it's very subjective. So it's very noisy. So, and we don't have very good way, like it, it takes very long time to detect, okay, so did, did, did uh, the disease progress at what level and how much did it progress? So what we showed is that you can use these measurements that we are getting from the home to have a reliable way of assessing disease progression and much faster than if you were looking at it from this, these questionnaires that are highly subjective. I see. Because it takes so long like for people to even notice a change in themselves, right? Once they have a symptom, yeah. that this is a, a nuanced measurement that can say like, oh, look, you know, over this amount of time, your walking has slowed down this much or your nocturnal breathing has changed by this pattern or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for example, we like the, the change is probably like uh, a few centimeters, like your speed is changing by few centimeters per second or even less, maybe even sub-centimeter per second. So it's not something that you are aware of. And this is over a whole year. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not something that you really know, but it's just like when you have very accurate measurement, you can actually quantify that and know actually this person is progressing 
faster than this other person or this is much faster than if you if the person was just healthy and did not have the disease so am i understanding this correctly the device can enable doctors to engage in precision medicine and just doses as well as gain insight into long-term progression of the disease but the device cannot diagnose the disease initially so the question is what other testing does the movement data need to be complemented by? So, so that's the beauty of really bringing machine learning and artificial intelligence to this picture. So I told you so far about the things that, okay, so we know this person has Parkinson's. What can we do and what are the things that we can measure to help them? Now you can ask a different question. Let's say that we don't know whether this person has Parkinson's or not. Can actually the machine detect that this person has Parkinson's? Can you do diagnostic? And the question that we ask the machine to do is even more complex than this. Is that today when when you go to a doctor and you ask them to like diagnose somebody whether they have Parkinson's or not? They rely on the motor symptom. They, they rely on the tremor that we see with Parkinson's patient or the stiffness of the movements or something that has to do with their motor symptoms. But the problem with that is that these motor symptoms appear late in the disease. So the actual disease probably started in the brain 10 years ago, five years ago. But now we are not even aware of it until the person start having tremor and stiffness in the movements and all of that stuff. So you can ask a different question. You can ask, can we actually diagnose Parkinson's from something that has nothing to do with the motor symptoms? Because maybe if we are able to do that, maybe we can detect the disease before the motor symptoms appear and we have a chance of detecting the disease early before the brain already has been damaged drastically. And this is exactly the question that we asked our device. Can we use something that has nothing to do with motor symptoms, nothing that has to do with the movement to detect whether someone has Parkinson's or not? And the answer was yes. <laughs> so <laughs> do you want me to tell you what we, what we used? Absolutely. Yes, please. Okay, so we went back to read a bit more about Parkinson, and even like in the early writings of uh, Dr. James Parkinson, the, the person, the doctor that the disease is named after him, he talks about changes in breathing, the breathing of the, of the person. Mm-hmm. And our device can measure breathing without any wearables, just like... Um, the person goes to sleep, nocturnal breathing. So we know also Parkinson affects sleep. So maybe we can measure their sleep, sorry, their breathing during sleep, showing that from the nocturnal breathing, we can actually detect who has Parkinson's versus who doesn't without any motor symptoms. That's amazing. We have a few questions now about some of the potential limitations of the device, as well as where you see these findings taking the future of not only Parkinson's disease, but wireless monitoring of other diseases too. But first, a quick break. If you're enjoying the show and you want to help us keep making the content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. 
Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehash to become a patron for just $3 a month. Or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free science rehash water bottle. So Dr. Kotabi, I have a question about the use of the device for monitoring nocturnal breathing. What if there's two people sleeping in the same room? How do you know, how does it deconvolve this? If they're sleeping like in the same bed, we can separate the radio signal from each Uh individual. Yeah. Wow. That's most really of the cool. people that we monitor, they have a bed partner. Most uh-huh. people are a couple. In that same vein, can you talk to us about how the environment, such as different layouts in the home and different activities that individuals with various lifestyles engage in, might influence the readings of the device or change the data? Yeah. So this is really important because you want to normalize across, like eliminate differences that are due to the way I live, uh, what happens in my life, maybe even other diseases that I may have versus things that are intrinsic to the disease itself. Uh, So for example, when we monitor uh, the walking speed, so maybe I am slow because I am uh, like my my home has uh, so many things that are like I'm not a very uh, organized person. Have things on the floor, it makes it harder to move around. Or I have furnitures that I have to like walk around them, and I'm slowing down because I'm turning a corner as opposed to like I'm slowing down because of the disease making me slow down. So we take those things into account. So when we we look at the trajectories, we look at uh, when we are looking at comparing across different people, we look at taking like straight trajectories. And that's very nice because as opposed to like the accelerometer that you might have in like these wristbands that have acceleration, which doesn't tell you the trajectory, it just tells you move didn't move kind of thing. Here we, we see the trajectory that people walk. So if the person like moving from one room to another room and they slow down, maybe because they are opening a door, for example, not because they, they are like freezing as we see in Parkinson's. So it really matters where they, they to understand the trajectory and put the motion in the context of the floor map of the home. And that is very possible with this uh, kind of device that we are working with. One question I had was uh, previous work that compared like in-clinic gauge to Parkinson's severity gold standard only saw a really weak correlation, but your study has a, shows a strong correlation. Do you think it's because you have this continuous monitoring and you have like more nuanced measurements? So, yeah, so then I would say two things. One thing is that when a patient is performing in front of a doctor, I mean, we all know and all doctors, particularly Parkinson doctors, will tell you about the observer effect. So that the patient is putting in performance. He's trying to give the doctor what the patient believes the doctor wants to see or hear. So they are putting a performance. And they if you look at them, like you see, like even as a patient, like the, you are done with the, with this test and the patient is walking to pick up his jacket or it's completely different walk. Yeah, exactly. When we were learning the uh, neurological exam, our professor would have us come to his waiting room and he would, you know, 
greet us, call us by name, shake our hands, whatever. Then we came, sat down in his office and he said, I did 90% of the exam because we we didn't know we were being watched, right? As soon as we know we're being watched, oh, I'm going to try to walk as straight as I can, or I'm really going to try and make hearing test, right? So it's, it's trying to get to that unobserved effect, which you get to do all the time, given your technology. Yes. So, so that is very, very important because it sees how the person really function in real life as opposed to when they are trying to put the performance and some people may, may care so much about putting that performance for the doctor, some care less. Or this is today is a bad day because I had to drive for three hours to get to the clinic while like uh, some other visit or some other person, maybe they live nearby and they have much better, easy access that they, they were not tired on that particular day they went to the clinic. So, so both the observer effect and also, of course, there is a value for collecting so much data because you kind of like remove these things like when somebody walks slowly because they are talking on the phone while walking or somebody is walking quickly because they are trying to reach to some turn the, uh, turn the alarm off because, I mean, it just suddenly went on or something like this. So, so having a lot of data allows you to know the actual, to eliminate the noise and measuring people in their real functioning environment. And one, one thing actually we, we, we did not touch base on, which I think very important, is the visual input. You don't have visual input here. Everything is a radio waves, and that's also kind of add another lay, layer of, of privacy, privacy to the participant. You don't have any visual input for these devices, correct? Yeah, so it's, it's very hard to convince someone to put a camera in their home and forget about single camera, actually put in multiple cameras so that you can see them in multiple places and stuff like that. So, so that's really hard. Being able to monitor and get these physiological signals at a level that still maintains significant amount of privacy, the privacy that people care about, is really essential. That makes a lot of sense. Now, in terms of sample size, how does your study compare to other work in this area? So uh, in our study, there were 50 individuals in the study, but we monitored them for up to one year. I think this, this is really important for anyone who's working on clinical studies with Parkinson patients. So typically to see what we call statistically significant uh, measure, like something that you can trust from a statistical point of view, you need hundreds. I mean, the, the, there is a famous study done by the Michael J. Fox uh, Foundation called the PPMI study. They have over 500 people that they monitor for five years so that they can see that statistically significant uh, change or progression in the disease. While we are able to see statistically significant progression of the disease, using only 50 individuals, so this is not 500 plus, it's 50 individuals, much smaller, and just one year as opposed to the five years. So that's very important because running clinical studies with a humongous number of people is costly, is a lot of overhead, Sometimes it's very difficult because you have to find all those people. And many of them, if you are monitoring them for five years, many of them may drop out from the study much earlier. So being able to collect data passively in people's homes allow us to achieve the, the desired um, 
outcome or measure with statistical significance, with something that is robust and we can trust, but reduce drastically the overhead and the cost of doing so. I was actually going to um, uh, ask a question, another logistical question, which is, do these require any maintenance over that long of a year of collection? So we we do, uh, like the devices themselves, they are connected to the cloud and they have like kind of like what we call heartbeat. So like the device every now and then sends something saying, I'm here, I am working, I'm fine. Uh, and when, when the heartbeat stops, I mean, we, we like reach out and say, okay, so the device seems not working. Like, did you unplug the device? Most of the time, if somebody cleaning, they unplug the device and forgot to plug it again. Uh-huh. Gotcha. So more like user error, one would say. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's you need, of course, after like uh, some, some of our devices have been monitoring people for two years. You've demonstrated the utility of this device in Parkinson's in both sort of like the longer term disease progression and also kind of more acutely in, you know, changing of tracking medication doses and tracking reactions to doses. What's next for this? Yeah. So many things. I mean, of course, with in Parkinson's, I mean, we, uh, I think we are really like starting to scratch the surface. There are so many interesting questions. Like I told you about this very exciting result that we can detect Parkinson's from breathing. Now you can ask the next natural question, how early can we detect Parkinson's? Can we actually detect it before uh, the doctor can diagnose Parkinson's? And indeed, like in our paper, this is the second paper that I was talking about, which is was in Nature Medicine, we show that there are, uh, with a small sample size, that we are actually able to detect Parkinson's before it was diagnosed. So, but this is very small study. So now the natural big next thing is, can we actually use this to detect Parkinson's early? And if we can, that has many implications for how you develop drugs for Parkinson's and how you could potentially address the disease before the, the, the damage in the brain has impacted the patient drastically. So, so this is one big thing. Now you can go to like other diseases. So we are able to do this in Parkinson's. What about Alzheimer's? I mean, they share many things. Here, so can we do something similar in Alzheimer's, in Huntington's, in uh, uh, multiple sclerosis, in, in many diseases, ALS? I I really hope that we can uh, we can change both uh, understanding of some of the difficult neurological diseases by providing data that is lacking today in the way we characterize the disease, in the way we characterize the, the impact of medication, in the way we can treat the person and see the, the result of that treatment, uh, particularly in neurological diseases, because we, we don't have the test. It's not like, okay, do a blood test or this kind of test, and we understand those diseases. Even like in, in mood disorders, depression, uh, apathy, uh, anxiety, all those things. And uh, I hope that it also, it changes how we, like both changes the information and the understanding of the disease and also changes the, the treatment. And we talk a lot about telemedicine, but in many cases, I feel that we think about telemedicine as a video conference, like 
the one that we have here, like we, we are just looking at each other talking. But really, you want more more than that. You want to understand all of the information about the disease, understand who actually need this the doctor to, to look at them at what time and for what reason and what the, what the intervention should be. And the data can help us doing this and help us also decrease the cost of the healthcare system, which we all know is very, very costly in the United States. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. Leila, any question? If not, we may ask a, a funny yeah, question. <laughs> Go for it. What, what do you do in your spare time? Uh, we ask all the scientists that join us. We are also humans as scientists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I can show you like uh, my my dog. And this oh. is my, he is Hello. here uh, participating and listening. So <laughs> oh my gosh! For we, the audience, it's a very cute dog. <laughs> yeah. So uh, she, uh, I spend my spare time playing with her, and she spent her spare time <laughs> talking about. Parkinson's disease and novel <laughs> devices. Oh boy. <laughs> so I hope you did not install a device to monitor her. <laughs> Actually, it's, uh, it's funny. We, this is one thing like I look at her breathing. She has some breathing. <laughs> oh my God. See, scientists cannot stop. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh well, with goodness. that, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a very lovely discussion, and I'm sure everybody that's going to listen to this episode going to enjoy your discussion and the, the, the beauty of these devices and the frontiers that you are advancing at the, at the interface of engineering and, and, and health and medicine. Thank you, guys. Very, very nice talking to you. Are you left with more thoughts or questions after listening to a Science Rehash episode? Join us on Twitter at Science Rehashed and leave your comments, thoughts, questions, etc. on the episode Twitter thread to rehash this episode using hashtag SREpisodeRehashed. What a great conversation, Mehdi. I'm excited to see where this technology can take us next in the diagnosis and management of different diseases. Absolutely, Leila. And developments like this really open the door for improved access to care as well. Medicine and technology work in such great synergy. Listeners, if you have been missing our fireside chats, come back for our next episode in just three weeks to hear our conversation with Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist, Maybrit Moser. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Caitlin Holly, edited by Rakudza Kanyemba, and mixed by Aaron Troutman. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We would also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehashed. <laughs>